Hello, this is Mary Cole and the Good Story Podcast, helping writers craft a good story. With me, you will hear from thought leaders related to writing, and sometimes not, about topics important to writers of all categories and ability levels. Here is to telling a good story. much for tuning in to the Good Story Podcast. My name is Mary Cole, and with me, I have a friend of the show and me, Mindy McGinnis, mystery, suspense, thriller author, dog haver. Um, (laughs) If you are watching the video version of this, you will see a beautiful Dalmatian reclining just behind our featured guest. And uh, he might make an appearance uh, and and make himself known throughout the interview. But uh, we are a very dog-friendly show. So, Mindy, welcome. Why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell listeners a little bit more about you, your books, anything you have that's exciting coming up, and then we'll get into it. Yeah, sure thing. So I'm Mindy McGinnis. I write YA and I have about, I think, 12 books out now at this point. I do write across genres, but generally there's always a suspense and a thriller element at work. Um, I have written fantasy, I've written historical, I've written dystopian, but I kind of seem to be settling into a groove of mystery, thriller, suspense. So uh, I'm really excited about that. Uh, this is Gus. He is licking his balls right now. So we're going to try to make that stop. Hey, Gussie. <laughs> All right. So I do have a Dalmatian and he's my sweet, sweet boy. So he will be around. There he is. Yep. He uh, needs to be with his mommy a lot. So this is my pandemic puppy and he is with me constantly. People, um, I get requests sometimes if I'm doing a video interview or a school visit. Some people say, can Gus be there? Is that possible? And I'm like, yes. Gus can be present. In fact, it's hard to get him away from me. So this is my this is my Gus. Um, in terms of things coming up, I have a I'm really excited about a release I have coming in November. I believe it's November 29th. Uh, with James Patterson, I co-authored a book part of a continuation of a series of the Maximum Ride series from the early 2000s. And it centers on Maximum Ride and Bang's daughter, whose name is Hawk. Uh, the first book of that series is already out. It is simply called Hawk. The second book is the one that I co-authored with Mr. Patterson, and it is called City of the Dead. So that will be out in November, and I'm really excited about that. Something else that's not quite available yet, it's out in the public, but it's not available for order, is that The Female, The Species, which is probably my best-selling book, is actually getting a new cover. And I'm really excited about that because it means a lot of different things. Like within the industry, I know that it means that my publisher has faith in me and that they're putting money into continuing to promote my backlist and like rebrand me and put me out there and put some of my older titles in front of people alongside my newer ones because the female of the species is getting a cover that matches the new covers for my Edgar Allan Poe series, which is the initial insult, which is out now, and uh, the last laugh, which releases in March of 2022. So they're rebranding the female of the species with a cover with art from the artist Corey Brickley. And uh, the covers are really awesome. I'm super excited about all of those. And uh, much like, and we are nowhere in the same range as far as like income or celebrity or even what we write, but it's kind of fun because when I explain to people, you know, Jodi Picoult gets new covers, like every five years, they redo everything she's ever done. And I'm like, it's like that, but you know, really dark and twisty. Well, I think that's awesome. Why don't we talk a little bit, because you are a working writer, you are a multi-published author, right? So who came, did the publisher just swoop in one day through uh, just your agent or whatever and say, hey, we're going to repackage this. We really want to keep a good thing going. Is that, is that it, it, it sort of was bestowed upon you as good news? Yeah, it it truly was a gift from the gods. Uh, What happened was that my cover designer, I have had the same cover designer for all of my books from HarperCollins, which is pretty rare. So her name is Erin Fitzsimmons. And Erin and I have worked together on my books since Not a Drop to Drink, which came out in 2013. So she has done all of my books. And unfortunately, 
when it came time for the initial insult to be released, she was out on maternity leave. And I was actually like kind of broken because even though all of my covers are very different, I know that Erin has done all of them and she reads my books and then, you know, uses everything she knows about art and then other artists that she brings in to really capture the book. And she's always done an excellent job. She's actually won awards for some of the covers that she's put on my books. So I've always been really happy with her. And while I did like the cover that came out for the initial insult for the hardcover, I really liked it. As soon as I saw it, I was like, no, this is cool. I like it. But I also instinctively, I was a librarian for 14 years. I was like, I love this cover. It says so much about this book, but I don't know if this is a cover that you pick up and grab because you're like, I want to touch this. Like, I don't know if it does that. And um, I think that perhaps, I don't know what my sales were. It's still too early to really know what my numbers were for that book. But I think that my publisher must have kind of come to the same decision. And when Erin came back from maternity leave, they reached out to me and they were like, hey, Erin's back. Would you like to get a fresh shot at the covers for your Edgar Allan Poe series? And uh, we'll redo the initial insult for paperback release scrap what we were going to do for hardcover for last laugh. And then once we got that work with Aaron and then this artist, Corey Brickley that she brought in, they were like, we love these so much. How would you feel about redoing female, the species? And I was like, yes, please. Very cool. Like you can't, uh, I mean, truly, truly, I'm just very fortunate that my publisher believes in me and they back me. And my editor in particular is always in my corner. Um, also the imprint that I'm with, I am with HarperCollins, which is of course a huge, one of the big five, but I am with Catherine Teagan books, which is an imprint and an arm. And it is small, it is tight, it is family. And I've been with them for 10 years now. So, um, it's just got a more of a family feel inside of it. And they, they like me and they want to keep me and they treat me well. That's amazing. Um, it's always really nice to hear how people are published because it's not just, you know, for a lot of writers, when they set out to get published, uh, their criteria is just get me published. I just, I want to hear yes. Uh, not a lot of thought goes into fit at that point. And then when you are published, uh, sometimes those fit conversations really do crop up as a result of not feeling that you're supported or having a publisher kind of shuttle you to the side and maybe not pay that amount of careful attention that you're describing. So I really do want to posit that not all publishing journeys are created equal. And I think it is really amazing that the publisher, your, so Tegan, the Tegan imprint within HarperCollins, Harper is a huge house. And I have heard many stories of writers saying, you know, I feel kind of lost on this gargantuan list. Um, so I think it's very cool that Catherine Tegan Books is acting sort of as this smaller environment, this very tight knit family that you're describing. And that they're sort of keeping tabs on your various projects, not just your newest release, but they're keeping your backlist invigorated. And it really does make a difference. It does. And partially, it's not simply because I, it's, and it's certainly not because I make a ton of money for them. I mean, people, there is within the industry, I mean, you know, the industry is small. And so it's like when I travel, sometimes if I'm talking to other authors, they'll be like, oh, my gosh, like you're such a big deal. And it's like, you know what? I'm actually not like if I told you my numbers, you would shit your pants because it's like they're actually not that great. I just have a book out every year and I have a core group of readers that will keep coming back. And um, I, I do pretty well, but I'm not a New York Times bestselling author or anything like that. Um the reason why I believe my publisher treats me so well is because I work my ass off. Like that's the bottom line. Yeah. I was on a phone call with my agent who I also have a success story. I've been with my agent since 2010. Like we have never. Amazing. Been. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. 
So I've been with my agent for 12 years and I was on a phone call with her the other day and um, someone that I may be doing an, a memoir with, co-authoring a memoir with. And she told this other uh, writer, she was like, you know, Mindy will never miss a deadline. She's like, she, my, my agent, who is Adrian Zerhelen, she's with Folio Literary. She said that is she is my only client. Mindy is my only client that I can say that about. She has never missed a deadline and she has never asked for an extension. It's like you tell Mindy to do something and she will do it and she'll probably turn it in early. And like, that's true. I treat it like a job. I don't hang myself. I don't throw myself on any kind of pyre of I am too overwhelmed. And it's like, I am sometimes. <laughs> I I write obviously full time. I also have a podcast and a blog that I operate. Uh, I write under a pen name. I have an editorial service. You know what it's like. Like your email signature has like 12 different links to go to. So it's like, you know what it's like to be all over the place and having to manage everything and be your own business. But it's like, it is in fact a business. So when someone tells me this is due at this time, you're going to get it back from me because I, I, I mean, honestly, I grew up on a farm. I just, to me, I'm not pitching manure around. I can do this. This is not hard. <laughs> um, I love that. Uh, it, it does sometimes feel like shit shoveling, but maybe in a different way. Yeah, that's true. Um, so one thing that I, I do a lot of teaching about query letters, and one thing that I have been making sure to mention recently is that you're auditioning the entire time. And so whether you gloat about your work in your query letter, like, the, you know, this riveting exploration of blah, 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 or this thing that Tom Hanks is sure to go for, you know, it's like you want to convey that not only is your idea strong and you're pitching it in a compelling way, but that you are also going to be great to work with. And that is something that's one of those sort of soft skills, those soft impressions from the query that I say is pretty darn important. So the pitch is the hard sell, but the soft sell is I'm reasonable. I have human sized expectations. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a delight to work with. I'm a great communicator. All of these other things that you can, you can sort of get across about yourself in the query or in a conference pitch or on your website or with your social media. And I think it's one of those that your work ethic, your ability to meet deadlines, your ability to co-author, which we're going to talk about in a second, all of those things go into your personal success story because you're just a delight to work with. And that cannot be overstated. Um, one of the things that uh, my business partner is actually John Cusick of Folio. He is also at Folio along with your agent. And one of the things we talk about is, you know, this, this situation right now where there are a lot of writers. There are a ton of writers on the submission train. There are a ton of writers already on publishers lists that are be, you know, that are um, meeting mixed success because publishers don't treat all of their authors equally, especially kind of mid-list uh, authors who have sort of uh, gotten maybe a little bit lost in the shuffle. And there's, there's this kind of troubling idea that, well, there's always, you know, there's always someone else in the submission pile. There's always someone next in line. And so if you are just an unimpeachable delight to work with and you are able to manage yourself and you are able to meet deadlines, I just think that's such an asset in the business because as much as we think of publishing as this patron of the arts and something that furthers our individual writing craft. It's also a business. Yeah. Not a very good business model. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still a business. And I think that professionalism just is so underrated when it comes to these conversations that we have about the craft and writing. And, and I, I definitely do want to talk about the craft and writing because that's going to be interesting to our, our listeners. But I just think I have to give you a gold star, not that you need it, for just having your shit together. Yeah. 
and and that's the truth. I I always tell people. So if I'm I'm doing a a presentation at a library, if I'm talking to other writers, generally there are always other writers in the audience. And I say, you know, I guarantee you that there are writers in the submission pile right now that are better writers than I am. There are undiscovered writers out there that are better than me, but they are undiscovered. And you have to do the work of figuring out how to write a query, of knowing who to query in the first place. Uh, going through the hell of figuring out how to write a synopsis, like all of these things. And it that is, people complain all the time. And I understand because I queried for 10 years. So I understand why it sucks. Oh I'm my like, gosh. Yeah, 10 fucking years. But it's like, people complain about the, uh, the process of even getting an agent and how like prohibitive it is in some ways. And it's like, it's separating the wheat from the chaff right from the beginning. If you're like, I'm too good to write a synopsis, my work speaks for itself and I'm going to hand this to you and you're going to be thankful you met me. No, I'm not. Like, it doesn't matter how great your work is. If you're such a difficult person that you refuse to write a query or you refuse to break down your work into a synopsis because it's so precious, it can't be, you know, (laughs) contained in a synopsis, then no, I don't want to work with you. I don't care how good you are. So, yeah. And I see a little bit of that sometimes, like as uh, I do uh, an editorial business on the side and people will reach out and they'll be like, hey, I'd really like it. You know, I'd like to hire you. And I'm like, cool, these are my rates. And they're like, well, maybe you could give me a discount. And I'm like, no, like these, these are my rates. And they're like, yeah, but I'm, I'm really good. And I will give you a shout out when it gets published. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, these are my rates. And if you would like to work with me, you will pay the same rates as everyone else, you know? And so it's like, I don't, you're not going to impress me by being egotistical. Like you were saying, um, you have to have confidence, but you can't be egotistical. And that is a line to walk. Uh, You figure it out. You probably have to be over 30 to figure that out, I think. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, so I have this client uh, who is a current student in Story Mastermind, which is my small group writing workshop. And he actually comes from the NFL former professional athlete. And we were having the most interesting conversation the other day uh, because he has sort of been forged in this crucible of this highly competitive environment. You know, there's merit, but there's also hype and kind of working your way up those ranks is you, you can find comparisons with being a writer on this mission trail. And he said something that really stuck out to me. Uh, He's like, you know, the, the playing field is equal, but it's not always fair. Yeah. You know, it's everybody has that shot, but then what you do, how you act, how you comport yourself, your natural inane talent that you bring, sorry, innate talent that you bring. Those are some of my thoughts about football leaking out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, that's going to sort of, that's going to determine your journey. So everybody has the same shot, but what you do with that shot, what you make of it, how you, how you present yourself and your, the, the talent that you bring to the page, those all go into this, this stew of what your experience is going to be. Um, I don't want to babble on another minute uh, speaking of bajillionaire writers and kind of all of this stuff, tell me how this James Patterson collaboration came about. I am just fascinated deeply, like in a sickening way, by <laughs> the Patterson machine. Right. Um, and you have now been on the inside. So you probably are bound to a hardcore NDA. But whatever <laughs> you can share about the process, I would love to hear. Yeah, it was really cool. So the way that it happened was that um, James Patterson had decided that he wanted to revisit the Maximum Ride world because it was immensely popular. I was actually a librarian when the series was first coming out. And even my reluctant readers, they were just like, oh, my God, like they were all over it. They loved it so much. Like. If I had a reluctant reader, I knew I could start them on Maximum Ride and they would be in and usually finish the whole series. So um, it was always kind of a go-to for me. Uh, so, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, 
he decides he's going to reboot with like the next generation and had a co-author for the first one. And he likes to, I, I, I hate using the phrase, but it's true. Like literally spreading the wealth. Like he likes to work with different people (laughs) so that everyone benefits a little bit. And so he had done the first series with um, an author that he had worked with before on a different series. And then he was looking for someone else to help with the second book. And as we've said before, it's so true. Publishing is a small world. And basically just, you know, that flare went up. James Patterson is looking for a co-author and my agent, you know, was aware of this. The memo went out and she shot me an email and she knows that I'm a workhorse and I'm always looking for whatever an opportunity could be. And she was like, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I was like, yes, I would absolutely love to because I'm familiar with the content and I know the characters. This would be a really cool opportunity. So um, you had to like, you know, throw your hat in the ring and be like, this is who I am. And these are some things that I've written. And so Mr. Patterson basically, you know, saw my name on the list and read uh, some pages from Not a Drop to Drink and was just like, yeah, I like your style. And uh, let's have a phone call. And so, you know, we talked. He was really cool and really sweet. Very nice. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I got the job. And I was so, gosh, like, it was so cool because, I mean, it's James Patterson, right? So it's like, I was reading his books when I was, I, you know, I was reading Alex Cross books when I was in high school. And he's calling me on my phone, you know? Like, it was just this moment <laughs> where I was just like, be cool, be cool, be very cool, <laughs> you know? And I, I managed to get through it without making an ass of myself. And um, I had a really, really cool experience where um, I had just started dating someone new and it was someone that I really liked a lot and was, and I'm not intimidated by many people, but he's just like someone that I really, really liked. And so I always wanted to like be cool and, you know, make sure the date's going well. <laughs> And I was hanging out with him. We had just started seeing each other. We've only been seeing each other for like maybe four weeks. And um, my phone was sitting on on the the dining room table. Like we were eating, we were talking. And my phone rings, and it says, you know, James Patterson. And <laughs> he looks down, and he goes, and of course, at this point, I'm not allowed to talk about the project. And he looks down, and he goes, "Is that for real?" And I said. <laughs> yes, that's that is James Patterson calling me, and he was like, "Do you need to take that?" Like I can, and I'm like, "No, I'm on a date. It's okay." <laughs> oh, nice! And he was like, "Oh, that was baller." <laughs> <laughs> so I have so much to thank James Patterson for. It was like this wonderful, you know, we've been together two years now, but I think that really like sealed the deal for me. He was like, she "Nice call from James Patterson for me." feel pretty good. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, And that's something, so a lot of people might find fault with James Patterson for writing or or having this like writing uh, assembly line where he partners with co-authors and it, it, it just seems like such a factory and so anathema to like the art of books. But to your earlier point, these stories connect these characters connect he has this storytelling style and sort of he's codified the 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 blueprint for telling a really gripping compelling story he's done more for uh reaching readers uh like some of your reluctant readers in in the library in the school library setting I think it's so rad that you're like, you know what? I will take this experience. This is a feather in my cap. I will do it. It's maybe not, you know, it's it. you're co-authoring, but you're down to clown, as they say. <laughs> yeah. And well, and he's like, you're so right. What you're saying is like, he has cracked the code for pacing and um, just like page turning. And people really like that. Like the average, your average everyday reader that wants to just read a book, sit down at the end of the day, unplug, relax, read a book. They, you know, someone that's looking for that, because I'll do that. I alternate, like I'll read something deep and heavy, like freaking, I, every winter I pick a really, really big book. And like, I think last winter it was Moby Dick. So it was like, oh, wow. I, I'll, yeah. I'll read something like Moby Dick. 
And then I'm going to read 10 Janet Ivanovich books. So it's like, that's, you know, it all depends on what you want and what you need. But um, yeah, I think too, when it comes to James Patterson, also, I know that because I hear people, you know, that, that they do like talk about it as uh, the machine or a factory or whatever. And I understand and I and I understand why to some people it would be off putting. But um, as someone that has directly benefited from it, um, I do think there's also just literally the amount of money that he pumps into publishing and the surrounding, uh, everything about it, libraries, independent bookstores. I mean, I don't know numbers, but it's a lifeblood for a lot of individuals. I mean, I know that for me, it was just, I mean, it was literally life-saving. It happened right when the pandemic hit. I, I was still, I had income, monthly income coming in from this project at a time, um, I make a lot of money doing appearances. And well, not I shouldn't say I make a lot of money doing appearances. I make a large percentage of my income. A lot of my money is from doing appearances. It's a significant stream for a lot of people. It is. It and is. I lost, up. It was gone. I lost 56 events because of the pandemic. And all of any money that I had sunk into hotels and, you know, travel and all that stuff, it turned into vouchers, but it was essentially gone. And um, it was just um, literally kept me from um, having to go get a nine to five. I was able to continue to just be a writer and keep my head above water because, I mean, James Patterson had me on his project and it made all the difference. Uh, so it's like, I, I, I do understand the viewpoint of, of looking at it. Like, you know, this is a machine that is churning out material and like, I understand. And there may have even been a time when I felt that way, but then I, I actually experienced it and I was in it. Yeah. And I was having phone calls with James Patterson where we were talking about what I had just written, what he had just written and he was also be like, he would be like, don't be afraid to mess with what I wrote. It's not gold. <laughs> like, go in there and then like mess with it if you want to. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. He's like, no, do it. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just like a really cool, um, really cool experience and just respect on both sides. And I felt like, I mean, I really felt, I didn't feel like a cog in a machine. I really did feel like every time he called me and we had a conversation, it felt like a real conversation. It really did. That is amazing. And again, I have to come back to just your attitude of like, this is awesome. I am an equal here and I'm going to learn what I can. I'm going to contribute. And this is just another way to build a career in writing, you know, yeah. I think that is so amazing. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for some of those conversations. I think his masterclass is phenomenal. And you're right. It's like you see somebody at the airport reading James Patterson and it's like, huh, huh. you know, people can have these, these kind of lofty opinions. But at the same time, to your point, so much of the publishing industry is getting capital, is getting excitement, is getting engagement with the reader, kind of that end user of all of this art and creativity and this entire business down to James Patterson. He has done so much for the industry and he is one of those people that gives back. Yes. You know, does. he has made capital contributions to the industry um, in addition to artistic contributions and just generating excitement for, for books and reading. Absolutely. And I had a conversation and it's not, I mean, it's not just James Patterson. I had a conversation the other day with one of my editorial clients that I actually work with like a lot. And, um, you know, we're, we've gotten friendly and, and he emailed me, I had just done some of his pages and he emailed me back and he was really, he's very receptive of criticism, but he was like, you know, I get so frustrated when I see a book like Twilight that becomes makes billions of dollars. And I emailed him back and I was like, look, if it wasn't for Twilight, I wouldn't be published because Twilight blew up YA and it suddenly gave 
the industry was making money hand over fist publishers whenever a book does really really well like even if you hate it if madonna's picture book for children does really well and (laughs) it's like i get it but now that publisher has all that more money that they can use to take a chance and take a risk and maybe sign on some more debut authors so it's like you know i get ticked off sometimes too when i see like you know the next reality tv show star that suddenly wrote a novel and i'm like and i have that and it makes me angry but I truly do believe that a uh, you know a rising tide lifts all boats, and if there is someone out there that has never read a book in their life, and I I mean uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, I have a lot of opinions about Fifty Shades of Grey, but I know women that have never read a book in their life, and then they read all of Fifty Shades of Grey, and they were like, "What is this reading thing? I like it," and now they're reading. <laughs> And it's because of Fifty Shades of Grey. So it's like I I used to be a little bit more of a snob after, especially after I graduated from college. I was like, I will not read it unless it's on, you know, <laughs> yeah, the hundred list of books to read before you die. And um, I have completely changed my opinion on that after being in the industry and and understanding a little bit more about. Uh, a reader, whatever makes a reader, well, I think being a librarian made a, had a big impact on me in that way too, because, you know, I would be giving books to 12, 13 year old boys that I would rather eat it than read it. <laughs> but these kids would come back and be like, can I have the next one? Is it a series? And I'm like, oh, okay. It has worth. It has value. I think that is, oh, I am just picking up what you're putting down so hard today. And I want to really thank you for bringing this perspective. And I think it speaks to that maturation and that, you know, sort of grinding down of the ego that happens um, after a while in the industry, because you're right. If Madonna's book does well, her picture book, then that publisher has a fresh flush of cash to take risks on. And everyone can complain Another complaint that I really hear a lot is the standards for getting over that first obstacle of getting an agent, getting published are so much higher, it seems, than the standards for already published authors in terms of, you know, your manuscript has to be so tight and just completely unimpeachable. And then, you know, a couple books in and the standards seem to relax, especially if it is a best-selling or a celebrity writer. Um, so I hear a lot of complaining, but I'm like, you know, you, you got to learn the ropes. You have to learn your craft. You have to demonstrate that you can do it. Um, and that's in, in today's world with traditional publishing consolidating endlessly, it's just, it is a higher bar. There are people who take the indie route, who uh, find great success. There are a ton of strategies that they can use to generate and cultivate a readership. So that's always available. But if you want that brass ring of traditional publishing, there is a certain uh, level of work and output and grit uh, required. Oh, yeah. And you got to crawl through glass and set yourself on fire and come back out <laughs> and, and have a fresh skin and be like, I'm going to do it again. I mean, it, 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 I mean it, it sucks. It's like I can't. I always tell people, like I said earlier, I queried for 10 years. It's like I'm not, I am certainly not someone that hasn't, I paid my dues, you know, And you didn't just stumble into your success. No, not at all. So when I hear people complain about these things, I'm like, yes, 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 yes to all of it. It sucks. Hardcore. But that callus that you're building up on your skin and on your heart and on your soul, you're going to need that when you're in public. That's going to be my new band name, Soul Callus. Soul Um, Callus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So instead of bumming everybody out with the reality of the industry, why don't we shift to something that actually came up? It was a beautiful segue in your James Patterson anecdote, which is pacing. You write mystery, thriller, suspense. Um, 
and pacing and I would say the disclosure of information are two things that are crucial to that category. I would say pacing is crucial to anything that anybody wants to write. But when your books are predicated upon learning a piece of information or withholding a piece of information or red herrings, MacGuffins, like all of these tools that are available to you, I think mystery um, thriller suspense tend to be more uh, exquisitely plotted along those lines of what you reveal when, what you want your reader to think. There's just a heavier hand involved in planning all of that. Um, one of the questions that I get the most is sort of, you know, if I have a reveal, how do I pace it? How do I make it that I give readers enough information that they care, but not give the farm away if I have something planned for later. So how do you approach that? Yeah, it's hard. So it's a really good question. Um, usually what you want to do, in my opinion, and I don't plot heavily, I, I do a lot of fly by night and writing by the seat of my Okay. So, but with mysteries, like you, you, you can't necessarily do that. So you have to you have to know the answer before you start writing. But I think that you can play a little bit with subplots. Um, as far as the master plan of what happened or who done it, that you have to know the answer to. But subplots, I think I personally can be a little looser with. Um, so I do think that subplots are key to uh, keeping the reader interested and invested. But also any piece of you have to give them some answers because Otherwise, they're going to get frustrated. They're not going to like watch all the way to the end of season seven to finally yes. find the answer. You have to give them something as you're going. Um, the key is letting the answer make you ask more questions. So once you have that answer, the answer should unlock 30 other doors and make you go, what the fuck? So like the best, one of the best examples I have for this um, and, and a lot of people trashed the show because of the ending, and I understand, but lost. Ah, when, I, I, I thought you might have been going there. Yeah. That show. Oh, my God. Like, it is in some ways genius. So it's like, you know, John Locke is going to dig up this, you know, uh, oh, shoot, what is it called? The pod that's buried. You know, he's going to dig this thing up. And they're like, and it's like, he he's, I will never forget the episode where he's pounding on the door and he can't get the door open. And he's just like, why won't you let me in? I did everything right. And he's just like kind of hanging over the window and he's like, Oh God. And like, you've been wondering for eight, nine episodes, what's in the, what's going on? What's on the other side of this door. And instead of getting the answer, a light comes on. And you're immediately like, holy shit, there's a person down there, you know? And, <laughs> and it's not like, and it's not like, oh my gosh, um, you know, he found a treasure, the answer to why the plane crashed. You get an answer. There's a person down there. And then it's like, well, who is it? How did they get there? How long have they been there? How are they living? What the, I don't understand. And like, I will never forget as a writer, as soon as that light came on, and, and it shoots like straight up in the sky. So this is amazing visual. And then the end of the show, just boom, it's that noise and everything goes black. And I'm just sitting there on my couch, literally going, oh my God. And that is like, to me, that's how you do that. You give a little bit and then you're just like, oh, it has to it has to cause more questions and make you even more deeply invested. So a more modern example, I haven't finished it yet. I just started watching Squid Game. Have you watched it? No. Uh, and I did want to sort of ask you about writing dark and dystopian stuff um, in in a post pandemic world. So uh, you have sort of scooped my second big question, but I just read a news item today that at a Squid Game pop-up in France, an actual brawl erupted with like 700 people in the streets. And I was like, you know, <laughs> there, there was this great uh, article 
about Hope Punk that I read the other day, and I forget the science fiction writer that was profiled in this article. I might put it in the show notes if I ever find it in my 2000 tabs that I've opened. Right. But I was like, you know, <laughs> like when I read the premise for Squid Game, I was like, uh, I know it's the most popular thing in the whole world, but I kind of like, I need to insulate myself. Oh, from, yeah. Like dark shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. You need that soul callus needs to be pretty thick before you go into Squid Game. I'll just tell you. <laughs> but, uh, I'm usually like a huge fan, but I think I'm just like, I, I'm that rope that has gotten like whittled down to like the last thread on my, like my dark shit quotient is, uh, all but, all but maxed out. But from the story perspective, I need to watch it. So what are your insights? So I just came off, I don't get a lot of watch a lot of TV because I am constantly working. I also indie publish under a pen name. And so it's like just constant, constant, constant work. And so um, when your plate is full, you go back to the buffet is what you're telling oh, me. I do. Oh God. <laughs> I, I, we need Roman vomitoriums for me. Like I probably have a workaholic problem. Um, I, hey, and I do too. I resonate with that so hard and I justify it with the moral high ground of, well, you know, there could be a lot worse problems to have. At least this one is productive right. and it serves others. And my I family. love what I do. Like I just yeah, exactly. love what I do. I don't come home from the brick factory and make more bricks in my backyard. It's like, I, <laughs> I love what I'm doing. And, and so it's like, I'm constantly working with words. But um, yeah, I, I had the chance. I finally watched Shit's Creek. Uh, I'm so back oh, to- Oh, yeah. yes. So I finally watched Shit's Creek, which I think gave me that, that uh, lift that I could go watch Squid Game after. Yes, it is um, absolutely effervescent. It's like eye bleach on the internet. Oh, I know. It's so beautiful and so sweet. And, and so it's like, I was able to watch Squid Game because of Shit's Creek, but- um, <laughs> I think like that darkness, um, gosh, like I, Squid Game is dark. Like, I mean, wow. Um, some of the things that they do, it, it, I almost like um, if anyone has seen Midsommar from A24, it's yeah. similar to that in, in um, feel and look. Because Midsommar takes place over, uh, there's no darkness ever. Like it is, it's when the sun is is up there and it's not moving. And so the equinox. And so the entire horror movie takes place in broad daylight, which is part of what made Midsommar wow. so powerful. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think Squid Game operates in a lot of the same ways because you'll just have these people that are out in like, oversized playgrounds and the sun is shining and the sky is blue and there's birds flying and there's snipers just shooting them if they do the wrong thing. So it's like, and they're playing, they're literally playing children's games. Um, so it's just, I don't know. I can't, I can't even describe like the horribleness of it <laughs> yet. How, how effective it is. Um, I think when you're writing, when you're writing something dark and horrible, you're going to have to admit that you're just going to lose some people. Uh, you're not yeah. going to be for some people. So for example, one of the readers that I alienated right away was my own mother. <laughs> she was just, my mother, like starting with the female of the species um, was just like, Mindy, I just don't know if you should be <laughs> And I was like, mom, I, this is how I operate. This is who I am. Like I, that's the other thing. Um, as far as the darkness goes, um, I stopped apologizing for it so long ago. Like, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I like. It's what I, um, read. It's what I watch. It's what I want to write. And, you know, I was like that when I was a kid and I don't have, I I'm from like an actual nuclear family in Midwestern heartland. Uh, I have no trauma in my life. I have never seen a dead body. Like, I mean, it's just, I don't have, there's no reason. There's no like deep psychological loss. I've the, just, the this wound way. in a, in a character sense, this is the wound that sort of made the Mindy. So you're saying there is, don't go poking there's, around. It's just not there. 
there's no primal wound. I'm just weird. Like that's just the way it is. And I, I, I remember when I was a kid, I would like, I like to be scared. Like, you know, I would read things and watch things and get myself all upset and not be able to sleep and be like, kind of panicked. And my mom would be like, then why did you read that or watch that? And I'm like, cause I liked it, you know? And so, I mean, my parents were really, really wonderful and they, they didn't censor, but, um, you know, there was always this, um, this feeling and it wasn't in my, it wasn't in my parent, in my, my household, but there's always like, you like weird things or you're weird or why are you interested in serial killers? Cause that was before you, true crime was a thing. It's like, I was reading, well, it's always been a thing, but it wasn't like, this is what all the women are doing. You know, I was reading Helter Skelter. When I was like 12 and people are like, there's something wrong with you. You know, and I'm just like, no, I, I'm just like way ahead of the times. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's like I this is what I like. It's what I'm interested in, um, but not exclusively. People always people are read my stuff and then I show up and I do an event and I'm just wearing like jeans and the flannel and I make them laugh. And they're like, this is not what I was expecting. And I'm like, <laughs> No, I'm they not. Want, they wanted you to like show up, uh, like dragging a dripping axe across yeah, the floor, or like literally just carrying a dead body. Like I just killed this guy. <laughs> he made me mad, you know. And, and <laughs> no, I, you know, it, it's just I love being a just totally a normal ass person that thinks about really fucked up things. Like that's just. It's just who I am. And so that's what I write. And like I said, when you want to go that way, when that's what you're interested in, I don't think you should ever um, question your own likes and drives. Now, in the real world, if you if you want to hurt people, that is bad. Don't you should never hurt people. But yeah, just just time out for a second. This is not <laughs> yeah, we're not advocating that you actually through the fictional instrument, you yeah. can work out whatever shit you got going on. It's just not, not in the real world. Keep That's the curtain right. drawn between the two. <laughs> yeah. Very, very heavy curtain drop there. Yes. In the fictional world, you can do that exploration. And that's what I always talk about when um, uh, we talk about like youth reading some darker stuff. And it's like, number one, a lot of them have already experienced it. And number two, if they haven't, this is safe exploration, drugs, sex, drinking, whatever. This is safe exploration. They don't have to go do it. They can read this book and be like, oh, okay. You do have the vicarious experience through the fictional interaction. So, um, yeah, I think writing that stuff. I mean, I've had people ask me, particularly female, the species, but also a madness so discreet. That one set in a um, insane asylum in the 1890s. People are like, <laughs> people ask me all the time. They're like, is it hard for you to write this? Like, isn't it difficult to sit down with that material every day? And it's like, this is how I feel about romances. Like, <laughs> how do you ever, I'm divorced like twice. So that's part of it. But it's like, I don't understand how you could ever sit down and be like, and now I'm going to write the happy ending. I'm like, bullshit. You know, it's like, that's so for me, it's just like, that's my lens. And no, it doesn't bother me to sit down and write like a horrific scene in an insane asylum and then go to my niece's t-ball game. <laughs> it's just that demarcation. This is fiction. And now I'm going to go eat popcorn at a t-ball game. And there's no like, that, that's not a hard transition for me. Well, one of the things that we heard going uh, kind of a couple of months of pandemic and every writer dusted off their viral dystopia to try and sell that because now, you know, this is the hot news item. It's super timely. And then all we heard was that, um, you know, everyone's tired of dystopia because we're living in one now. No, thank you. We need to be hopeful and uplifting. And I feel like there was that groundswell. But now with Squid Game being kind of universally popular, this is not a new property. 
This is a Korean show that I think was popular like 10 years ago that Netflix kind of picked up, dusted off. Um, Now that this is like taking over the world, it's like, oh, are we are we back on our depraved bullshit (laughs) as a human species now, despite claiming to want only uplifting things? Right. Uh, It's true. So um, my books, like we said, most of them are pretty dark. And um, I was worried in the pandemic and and afterwards, I was just like, nobody wants to read this right now. Everybody does want that romance. Everybody wants to watch Schitt's Creek. And that's great. But I think I think one of the things that is I think one of the things that is um, I don't want to use the word redeemable, but one of the things that is a draw when it comes to something just like horrific, like Squid Game is like no matter how bad things are if you can see someone else in a worse and more horrible position you feel a little bit of relief and i think like like you know when you drive past a car accident you look you look and people we do that psychologically like the, the reason why we do that is because deep deep down inside the little part of you that is pure ego is like that wasn't me, you know? And that's like, that is really important. Um, it, it's it's pure primal survival. It's shit, but it's true. And I think watching some of that stuff that is darker and horrible, I, I mean, I do think that there is some comfort to be found in it could always be worse. And I think also agency, because I am, I've been kind of paying attention to this true crime podcast, just blizzard. Yeah. And I think what has really played a part in this phenomenon taken off, um, largely with female viewers, you know, is that there's this glamour to being an armchair Facebook sleuth. And seeing just like real women rip open a cold case and make a difference in the world. And of course, there is this like, great, you know, we might put closure on this thing. We might give solace to the family. We might explore this really gritty murder, um, you know, but just this kind of there's there's a frisson of empowerment to it, too, where it's like, you know, you you see these stories, you sort of compare them to your real life. You might even participate, like join a Facebook group or, you know, do do your own Internet sleuthing on Reddit. You know, I think it's just this really interesting thing where we may not enjoy darkness when it comes to our lives, but we enjoy participating in darkness, even like tangentially. Yeah. I also think this is something that uh, my boyfriend and I have really long conversations about. Because, um, you know, true crime obviously is just like it's the candy that everyone is eating and has been since cereal. And um, and even before that, but I, I feel like cereal was kind of the big modern uh, gateway. Oh, totally, totally the flashpoint. Yeah. And um, I have always been of the opinion that the reason why women are the the audience for this or one of the big audience for this is that it truly comes down to art of war know your enemy and i think that there's a lot of solace to be found in just being aware of how serial rapists and serial murders work and just like i i do think that there is you know it's amazing to me some of the things that you can pick up that are really simple. And uh, I still substitute at the school where I work and um, where I used to work. And I'll talk to especially the girls, but um, talk to the students and uh, the girls in particular. And, you know, we all have those. Have your phone out. D- don't walk around by yourself. Number one, have your phone out, have your keys in between your fingers or whatever. But I'm like, you know, the biggest thing is when you get in your car don't fuck around. Get in your car, shut the door, lock it, start it, drive away. When you get in your car. And check the back seat. Yeah. And always check the back seat. Yes. But it's like if you get in your car and then you read your text messages or you get your music set up or you do all these things, you're not paying attention anymore. And 
anything could happen. And especially if you're in like a parking garage or something. Yeah. So it's like, Total city it's, very simple. it's very simple, but you just get in your car, you start it and you drive away. And, um, that window of, Oh, who texted me? You know, it's like that. It's just like actually driving the car, you're distracted and anything can happen. So it's like, that's something that I just picked up from, from true crime stuff. And I really do like, that's always been my interpretation of why one of the reasons why women are so attracted, it does give some power back. Like I'm seeing how you operate and I'm learning how to counteract it. Because disproportionately women are the victims in a lot of these cases, the stalking, the strangling, like all of that. Um, So to bring this back to my initial pacing question, one thing I loved about your last example was before we got the twist of the light turning on, what would you say to my hypothesis that if we can't yet give away the information that we're planning for later, one of the things that we can do to sort of keep readers going is connect it to character. And you described it so well of him like beating down the door and being like, I have given you my life. You know, it's that character investment. And I think by proxy, the reader's investment in the character's investment, you know, so those personal stakes are the thing that keeps us going, the thing to build in before we can build in information. What do you say? Uh, I think that it's fiction and you have to make people care about something that never happened to a person that doesn't exist. You can have the most interesting (laughs) in the entire world. And if you don't care about the characters, nothing matters. Nothing matters. I read a book and I won't say what it was, but I read a book in college in one of my novel novel and uh, narrative fiction classes. And I read the whole thing. You know, I always was a good girl and I did the reading and I came to I came to um, class and people were talking about plot. And I was like, I don't care. I don't care. I, I don't care that this happened to this person. and I don't care that this happened to that person. So I was reading the book and I was hoping and this had nothing to do with nuclear bombs. But I was like, I was hoping that a nuclear bomb would fall in this town and kill everyone. So the book would be over. <laughs> because like, I, Mindy, you're yes. so weird. Yeah, they did. They were just like, wow, that's really acidic. And I'm like, yeah, it's not a good book. But you know, it's like, that's, that's how I feel about it. You have to care about the characters. Um, I love what you were saying. If you don't care about the characters, then plot doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Things have to happen to these. You have to care about these people that things are happening to. doesn't matter what happens if you don't care about them. The other thing, um, that I think is really interesting that you said is um, talking about uh, the uh, goals, the character goals becoming your goals. So in my book, Heroin, my main character is a heroin addict. Uh, it happens slowly, but eventually she's a heroin addict and she is a uh, softball. She's an athlete. And there are multiple times in the story where she has to get a fix before she has to go play a game or else she's going to go through a withdrawal. She's not going to be able to play. And because it's first person, Um, she's like literally running around town trying to find some heroin. And I've had people tell me that they're reading. They're like, oh my God, oh my God. Oh, I really hope Mickey finds some heroin. And then they're like, no, I don't. No, I don't want her to have heroin. She, that's bad. She's an addict, you know? And it's like, that's that's perfect. That's how I want you to feel. I want you to want her to get her fix because you sympathize with her now. And so it's like that, that is key. Like you've got to sell how important this is to the character. Um, One other thing when it comes to writing mysteries, something I really enjoy doing is if the reader knows something that the character doesn't, I think that is kind of, uh, it's a little bit tricky to um, illustrate, but, and I can't say too much because one of the ways that I utilized this was in my second Poe book, uh, The Last Laugh, which doesn't come out until March, but there is a character that you have come to trust completely from the first book. And in the second book, that character has um, an internal POV and you find out that that person is not who you thought they were They've been the whole time and are kind of a main player in the huge 
overall mystery. And so you learn things, but your other narrator doesn't know these things and still trusts that person. So you're Uh. reading her narrative and you're like, no, don't go in the car with him. Right. But it's like, if you, because you know that that other person is not to be trusted. So, but your character doesn't. So I think that that is a really good way to give the reader an answer sometimes, but there's still tons of tension because your main character or another character doesn't know. Oh, I think that is so smart. I mean, you do have to reconcile it after a little while because if the reader knows more than the main character for too long, it's like, ugh, just rip the scales from your eyes already. Eventually you're like, oh my God, you're so dumb. And then you lose, you lose that, um, that empathy of, of, oh gosh, I, I hope you get to find your heroine soon. Like, you know, you, you have to have that. You have to keep your main character smart and on the ball and, and have all those qualities that made you love that person in the first place. So no, you can't get away with that for long, but it is a really good way to jack up that tension for like three to four chapters. So I could talk to you forever. Um, and I'm sure listeners will feel the same, but we we have to look at time. I think I would love to hear your specific take. Uh, it's related to um, what you were just talking about. How do we how do we engender affection in our reader with a character who may not be the best? Like you were saying, you know, we're rooting for the heroin addict here. How do you do that early on so that we don't just reject them out of hand because they have this or that unfavorable quality? Uh, So it's a really good question. A lot of my characters are unlikable. But one of the things that I always say is they don't have to be likable. They have to be interesting. You don't have Mm. to like them. You just have to want to know what they're going to do or say next. So it's like... um, I'm going to go back to Squid Game. But one of the reasons why is because the main character is not likable. Like in the very beginning, he like is stealing money from his mother so that he can go gamble at the racetrack. He loses (laughs) his alienated daughter's birthday present because he gambles it away. Like he's not, he's not someone you want to hang out with. Like he's just, he's not a good guy. And, um, And I was, and this was before the actual like game and the tension starts. And I was like almost lost. I was watching this and we're following him very tightly. And I was like, I don't like this guy. Like, why am I watching this? And then he stops at like, um, you know, a a street vendor and he buys some food from the woman that's like a mother of one of his friends. And then, and he's like, he's all cool because he wants some money. He's like, here you go. You can keep the change, you know? And she's like, this doesn't even cover what you took, you know? And it's just like, he's just a <laughs> schmuck. He's just a schmuck. And I'm watching it. I'm like, I don't like this guy. I don't like this guy. I don't like this guy. And he's going home and he sees a kitty in the street scrounging around in the trash. And he reaches into his, into his bag and he pulls out a fish and he gives it to the cat and he pets the cat. And he's like, are you hungry here? And he gives the cat a fish. And it's, a purely giving moment. He has nothing to gain from this. this literal save the cat. Yeah, it is literally save the cat. It's like the cat can never return the favor. He is genuinely, you see this flash. Oh, he's a good person. He had, and then immediately you have to rethink him. It's like, oh, he gambles, but it's like, you know, he's poor. He gambles. He has problems. And it's just like, but he's actually a good guy because he just gave that cat a you know and it's just like it's at the end of the episode very first episode and you're like oh the kitty so it's like honestly if you can have that I always say if you don't know what your character is like or if you're having trouble give them a pet and see how they treat it see what the pet is yeah that's always a key for me um but also I think um when you have those unlikable characters, just keep them interesting. And everyone is sympathetic eventually. Once you know them well enough, everyone is sympathetic eventually. Um, whenever I'm doing writing classes, I always tell my students, it's like, you know, we all, every one of us, even real human beings, we are who we are for a reason. 
But we are also all the heroes of our own narratives, like all the time. I'm the hero in my story, but guess what? I'm the villain in some other people's stories. Right. And that's for when you're, when you're drafting a villain, it's like, they never think they're the bad guy. They are doing what they believe is right for X, Y, Z reason. It just, they look like a monster to us, but they look in the mirror and they probably on the balance feel pretty good about themselves Absolutely. at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, and I do too, in general, as a human being, and, and most of us do, I think. But I mean, I know there are people like in real life that I would be the villain in their story. And so I always tell my writing classes, whose villain are you? Because you're someone's. And when you think about that, it kind of makes you go, oh, God. And it, and it can really, for one thing, it's a really great like personality inventory, but it's also just like a great way to open up that fiction and be like, well, I think I'm great, but there was this thing I did this one time and it was the first impression that this person got of me when I was in a bad mood and I bumped into somebody at the grocery store and it didn't say, excuse me, or like whatever I did. And that person was like, well, she's a bitch, right? And it's like, no, I'm actually not. It was just, that's what you saw. So um, yeah, I mean, just always be thinking about that. Your villains cannot be one dimensional. Um, everyone is a human. And if you can find a way to show their humanity in their character, that's how you make them real and you make the plot matter. Well, you are definitely the hero of this podcast and <laughs> of my heart. Mindy McGinnis, thank you so much for joining us. I have loved the hell out of this conversation, and I hope you listeners at home have as well. Well, thank you so much. It was awesome. I I love everything that you do, and I'm always sharing your links. And uh, I think it's a wonderful service to writers that you exist. Oh, stop. We are in a mutual admiration society. Mindy, thank you so much again. And to all of you listening, here's to a good story. Thank you so much for tuning into the Good Story Podcast. My name is Mary Cole, and I want to extend my deepest gratitude to the Good Story Company team, Kristen Overman, Amy Wilson, Rhiannon Richardson, Joya morrison Effemini, Kate London, Mikal Leah, Jenna Van Roy, Kathy Martin Olich, Len Katan Prugel, Rebecca Landesman, Steve Reese, and Gigi Collins. Please check us out at goodstorycompany.com. And I would love it if you joined Good Story Learning, a monthly membership with new content added where you can learn everything you ever wanted to know and more about writing and publishing for writers of all categories and ability levels. Thanks again for listening. And here's to a good story. Thank you.